I have seen a lot of my dentist of late. All the jobs that should have been done but weren't because of lockdown. So I saw a hygienist for the first time in ages for a thorough clean and the next day a filling fell out. A coincidence of course and back I went to get it replaced. It was an awkward one. Top molar right at the back and my mouth doesn't open that wide even when I'm yawning. I did my best but having had a pain-killing injection my tongue was floppy. Can you press your tongue down? asked the dentist, to which I replied, Yes, that's right, she said. No one can control their tongue. So she had her assistant press the tongue down with some sort of rubber gadget. And about four hours later, it was all over. I exaggerate here, but it felt that long. And of course, you all know what I'm going to be talking about now. The first part of James chapter 3. Here it is in Tom Wright's translation, the New Testament for everyone. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters. You know that we will be judged more severely. All of us make many mistakes after all. If anyone makes no mistakes in what they say, such a person is a fully complete human being, capable of keeping firm control over the whole body as well. We put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, and then we can direct their whole bodies. Consider too the case of large ships. It takes strong winds to blow them along, but one small rudder will turn them whichever way the helmsman desires and decides. In the same way, the tongue is a little member but boasts great things. See how small a fire it takes to set a large forest ablaze. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of injustice with its place established right there among our members. It defiles the whole body. It sets the wheel of nature ablaze and is itself set ablaze by hell. Every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, you see, can be tamed and has been tamed by humans. But no single human is able to tame the tongue. It is an irrepressible evil, full of deadly poison. By it we bless the Lord and Father, and by it we curse humans who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and curses come out of the same mouth. My dear family, it isn't right that it should be like that. Does a spring put out both sweet and bitter water from the same source? Dear friends, can a fig tree bear olives? or a vine bear figs, nor can salt water yield fresh. The first part of the reading about teachers being judged more severely speaks to me. Talking to you like this makes me a teacher of a sort, and for many years I was a professional school teacher. I'm sure all of us can think back to our school days and remember teachers that inspired us. Perhaps it was their skill in imparting knowledge. Or perhaps it was something extracurricular, those teachers that ran sports teams or clubs. And perhaps we can remember that certain teacher who said just the right thing at the right time and opened the door into a whole new world. 
Sadly, no doubt, some of us can think of a teacher who slammed the door shut by putting us down, telling us we were not good enough, that we are a waste of their valuable time. So, if you are called to teach, think carefully. And remember another key teaching from the letter by James, chapter 1, verse 5. If any one of you falls short in wisdom, they should ask God for it, and it will be given them. God, after all, gives generously and ungrudgingly to all people. One of the key tools of any teacher is his or her voice. I remember one of my primary teachers, Mr Tunley. He was Welsh and was a great reader of stories. The way he read J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit to us set a standard to which I still aspire. And when I read the book today, all the dwarves have Welsh accents in my head. But I think James, as he writes about the tongue, has more than using our voice in the telling of tales. Our tongue is in many ways what reveals our hearts to the rest of the world. People will judge us by what we say and how we say it. I'm not talking about accents here, whether regional or class. How we say something can mean different things depending on tone of voice. David Kossoff tells a story of how the village tailor, Schneider, had accused the local butcher, Grobeck, of being a thief. Words were exchanged, tempers were lost, and in the end, Schneider agreed to say, in public, in the synagogue, on the following Sabbath, that Grobeck was not a thief. He walked to the front in his best Sabbath day suit and faced the congregation. Grobeck is not a thief, followed by Grobeck is not a thief. He had said the right words in the right order and had made his point. So what we say and how we say it have to agree. A bit of Greek for you. Sarcasm means to burn the flesh. So be very careful about how you use sarcasm. And when I say this, I say it to myself, as too often I intend to be ironic, but it comes across as sarcasm. Controlling the tongue is difficult. I like the figures of speech that James employs in his description of how dangerous the tongue can be. They tell us much about the world in which James lived, and by and large they communicate clearly to us today. You may never have ridden a horse, but you probably know how the metal bit in its mouth allows the rider to control the horse. Perhaps you've seen horse dancing in the Olympic Games, dressage as it is called, where the rider and horse work as one in what is often a very complicated series of moves. When we compare the size and weight of the horse and the rider, we should be amazed that a puny human can make a horse do anything. But the little bit in the mouth makes all the difference. Then James goes up a level. A ship is controlled by a relatively small piece of equipment. It's rudder. The Greeks and the Romans sailed across the length of the Mediterranean and beyond using a combination of wind and oar power. But without a rudder, the ship would soon run aground. 
And then James quotes from a Bruce Springsteen song. You can't start a fire without a spark from dancing in the dark. And I think James said it first, which is not an honest statement. I know James said it first. To say that you think something when you know it to be the case is just a figure of speech. But if it's not true, then I should not say so. See what I mean about it being difficult to control the tongue? We can tame animals, but we cannot tame our own tongue. And James concludes his statement with some vivid rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is one to which the speaker knows that there's only one answer, and also knows that his listeners or readers know that there's only one answer. But he asks it as a question to make the listener think doesn't he? Let's hear the last part of that passage again, uh, this time in uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message, James 3, 7 to 12. This is scary. You can tame a tiger, but you can't tame a tongue. It's never been done. The tongue runs wild, a wanton killer. With our tongues we bless God our Father, and with the same tongues we curse the very men and women he made in his image. Cursing and blessings out of the same mouth. My friends, this can't go on. A spring doesn't gush fresh water one day and brackish the next, does it? Apple trees don't bear strawberries, do they? Raspberry bushes don't bear apples, do they? You're not going to dip into a polluted mud hole and get a cup of clear, cool water, are you? We see that Peterson has changed the illustrations, uh, assuming that his readers are probably more familiar with apples and strawberries than they are figs and olives. James is not writing a gardening handbook. He's making an important point about how we live and speak. So do not worry about the illustrations. Make sure you get the point. We must control our tongue or it will control us. C.S. Lewis makes a similar point in his book Mere Christianity. I find this a helpful and thought-provoking book and recommend it to you. It's not perfect and Lewis was not inspired, but he was often very perceptive. See what you think. When I come to my evening prayers and try to reckon up the sins of the day, nine times out of ten, the most obvious one is some sin against charity. I have sulked or snapped or sneered or snubbed or stormed. And the excuse that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected. I was caught off my guard. I had not time to collect myself. Now, that may be an extenuating circumstance as regards these particular acts. They would obviously be worse if they'd been deliberate and premeditated. On the other hand, surely what a man does when he's taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create for rats. It only prevents them from hiding. 
In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar, but if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. He's not wrong, is he? Think about the last time you hurt yourself. You've stubbed your toe on some furniture or hit your thumb with a hammer. You didn't do it on purpose, but it happened and it hurt. What did you say? Ouch is almost a reflex. But then what? Do I need to get the beeper out as I beep, beep, beep to myself and anyone within earshot? Or can I control my tongue? I know what happens to me and I confess that I have a short fuse. I might say that I didn't mean it, but I still said it and I shouldn't have. Paul says this really well in Romans 7 from verse 14. We know, you see, that the law is spiritual. I, however, am made of flesh, sold as a slave under sin's authority. I don't understand what I do. I don't do what I want, you see, but I do what I hate. So if I do what I don't want to do, I am agreeing that the law is good. But now it is no longer I that do it. It's sin living within me. I know, you see, that the no good thing lives in me, that is in my human flesh. For I can do the good, for I can will the good, but I can't perform it. For I don't do the good thing I want to do, but I end up doing the evil thing I don't want to do. So if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I doing it. It's sin living inside me. Or to quote Robert Johnson, one of the great bluesmen of the 20th century, it's nobody's fault but mine, nobody's fault but mine. If I should die and my soul be lost, ain't nobody's fault but mine. My next witness for how difficult it can be to tame the tongue is the sweet psalmist of Israel, David, the son of Jesse of Bethlehem, and one of the greatest, no, the greatest king of Israel. Certainly by New Testament times, people were hoping or dreaming of a new King David to drive away the Romans and restore Israel to its former glory. Sadly, when a descendant of King David arrived on the scene, he was crucified. And while this was happening, he, quote, opened not his mouth. Here was someone who could control his tongue, even under the most grievous provocation imaginable. But back to King David. He's well known both as a king and as a composer of psalms, both of which facts make him remarkable. I expect you might have a favourite psalm or at least know some. Perhaps know in the sense of knowing them by heart or know in the sense that you are aware that such things exist. David did not write all of the psalms, but he certainly wrote some of them. The trouble is that the little Hebrew word le can mean several things. When le links David and psalm, it may mean of, as in written by, or of, as in about, or even for, as in written for David, commissioned by. 
to use a longer translation. But we're not here to study Hebrew participles. David wrote Psalms. Fact. In my opinion, he wrote some memorable ones. He was a great poet. In the technical sense of the word, an inspired poet. God's spirit breathed through David and resulted in some of the most beloved verses in the Bible. On this evidence, David was a gifted and great man of God, a man after God's own heart. But, oh, of course, there is a but. David was human and therefore flawed. It is only fair to mention some of uh, David's achievements. Uh, he had complete faith in God, demonstrated most memorably in his defeat of Goliath. He waited patiently until God was ready for him to take the crown. He had opportunities to assassinate King Saul, but knew that God was in control and only when the time was right would Saul die, killed not by David, but by the Philistines. You might remember David's lament over the fallen king and his son Jonathan at the Battle of Mount Gilboa, recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. David could certainly use his tongue for the glory of God. However, after he was established on his throne in his splendid new palace in his capital city of Jerusalem, David did something dreadful. Actually, several somethings. Each action had a consequence. We are in 2 Samuel 11. It is springtime, the time when kings lead their armies out to war. But David had stayed in Jerusalem. One evening, as he walked on the cool roof of his palace, he saw below him a beautiful woman bathing. In David Kossoff's memorable phrase, it was bonnets over the windmill. David could not rest until he found out who she was. And then David had Bathsheba, for that was her name, brought to his palace. We're not told what David said to her. 
He was the king and the commander-in-chief of the army and so used to giving orders and having them obeyed. Did he command Bathsheba to do what he wanted? Or did he use his skill with words to persuade her, to seduce her? Some years later, their son, spoiler alert, David and Bathsheba had a son who became king. Solomon himself was a noted poet. The book that bears his name, the Song of Solomon, is a love poem. As with David and the Psalms, the of may mean it was by Solomon or it may be about him. Whichever, it is an extended poem full of striking images. Here is one example to give a taste of it. The bridegroom, presumably Solomon, says this to his beloved. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. I'm not sure that comparing your beloved to a mare that pulls Pharaoh's chariot would quite cut it today. But back then, no doubt, it was high praise indeed. As Cole Porter puts it, in olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. I think we may have to take it as read that the Song of Solomon was pretty hot stuff. As he had 700 wives, not forgetting his 300 concubines, I think it's safe to assume that Solomon's reputation was deserved. Anyway, back to David and Bathsheba. Did David abuse his power and position to force Bathsheba to do his bidding? Did he use his poetic gifts to seduce her? We do not need to know, but I am certain that whatever it was he said, David was misusing his tongue. Soon Bathsheba was pregnant. But she already had a husband, one of David's military commanders, a man named Uriah. And Uriah was serving his king loyally out on the front line. What to do? To coin a phrase, David hatched a cunning plan. Uriah is recalled from the fighting and ordered to report to the king. Having interviewed Uriah, David granted him some leave and told him to go home and see his wife no doubt hoping that Uriah would assume that the baby that would await his next return from the front would be his. But Uriah was more honourable than his king. He refused to take leave while his comrades were still engaging with the enemy. David did all he could to persuade Uriah, but he was adamant and slept in the palace until David ordered him back to the front. It gets worse. David gave Uriah sealed orders to take to Joab, the field commander. Inside the letter was Uriah's death sentence. He was to be put at the front of the next battle and then, when the fighting was at its heaviest, the rest of the army was to pull back and leave Uriah to be killed in action. And it was so. In due time, Bathsheba had her baby and David thought he'd got away with it. But in one of the great turnarounds in the Bible, David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, who bravely puts his life in God's hands and goes to the king 
with some home truths. The story is in 2 Samuel 12 and is well worth reading. I like a different retelling by the English broadcaster and writer Adrian Plass. Here is how he puts it in his book, Clearing Away the Rubbish. It was evening in the palace when the prophet came by. There was trouble in his manner. There was thunder in his eye. He was still for a moment. He was framed in the door. And the king said, Nathan, what are you here for? The prophet said, David, I have a tale to tell. So the king sat and listened as the darkness fell, while the hard-eyed prophet took a seat and began the story of a merciless and evil man. This man, said Nathan, had a mountain of gold, sheep by the thousand he bought and sold. He never said, can I afford it or not? What this man wanted, this man got. And one thing he wanted, and he wanted real bad, was the only living thing that the poor man had. And he knew that it was wrong, but he took it just the same. I'll kill him, said the king. Just tell me his name. It was a lamb, said the prophet, just a little baby lamb. But he saw it and he took it and he didn't give a damn. And he knew that it was special and he knew it was a friend and he knew about the sadness that would never, ever end. And that same man began to plan a far more evil thing. Then David rose and cried aloud, he'll reckon with the king. So do you think, said Nathan, we should stop his little game? I'll smash him, shouted David. Tell me his name. Be careful, said the prophet. Don't go overboard. For David's eyes were shining like the blade of a sword. Perhaps you should be merciful. Perhaps you should try to understand the man before you say he must die. But David said, I understand that wrong is always wrong. I am the king. I must defend the weak against the strong. Then Nathan questioned softly. So this man must take the blame. And the king was screaming, Nathan, will you tell me his name? Then a silence fell upon them, like the silence of a tomb. The prophet nodded slowly as he moved across the room. And strangely, as he came, he grew more awesome and more wise. And when he looked at David, there was sadness in his eyes. But David's anger burned in him. He drew his sword and said, I swear before the dawn has come, that sinner will be dead. No more delay, no mercy talk, give me his name, he cried. Then Nathan said, it's you, it's you. And the king just died. A clever reimagining, in my opinion, and it's true to the spirit of the Bible, if not exactly word for word, but we get the point. David denounced his own actions in his righteous indignation against the villain in the story. And now David shows his true colours. He recognises that what he has done is indeed reprehensible. As we said earlier, he saw that it was nobody's fault but his. He doesn't attempt to blame Bathsheba. David was genuinely remorseful. He took the punishment that God sent him, learned the lesson and in the end truly became a man after God's own heart. All of which should give us something to think about. None of us truly controls our tongue. 
admitting the fact is a start. With God's spirit to guide us, we can aim to do better. And when we fail, as we surely will, we can respond like David in godly sorrow and genuine remorse and be confident that in God our Father we have forgiveness through his Son, our Saviour, Jesus. Amen.